Forge family. As we turn to the Word of God in 1 Thessalonians this week, let's pray. Lord God, you're the Redeemer. You take our sorrows and struggles, heal up our wounds, and cause all that hot mess to turn out for good. You calm the storm and cause us to be bold and ready to receive more of you from Holy Spirit. We stand before you as a grateful company of believers. Thank you for energizing us. In Jesus' name, amen. When we were last together in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was reminding the ecclesias, the the little house churches, in Thessalonica that he had arrived bruised and his wounds from from being beaten in Philippi had still not healed. Now he could have walked on through Thessalonica and waited for the healing in the natural, but instead he and Silas, the ones who were beaten, and Timothy, this is the missions team, by Holy Spirit, they began to proclaim the risen Christ to a massive city, perhaps 150, 200,000 people, and they got amazing responses. As the conversions of the Thessalonian believers became evident, so did the pressure from within the homes that they lived in and persecution in the marketplace. The streets began to redound with slanderous comments about this new religion, and the motives of Paul and the missions team. Paul's response was to say he answers to God alone as his witness. The gentleness poured out among new believers helped them learn quickly that they too had a resilient faith to stand up for Jesus, the risen Christ. Finally, Paul points out a list of charges to be brought against the Jews for harassing the churches both in Judea and in the Gentile communities where Paul had planted churches. Now, let's take out your texts of 1 Thessalonians, and we want to turn to chapter 2, verse 17. Here, Paul begins the telling of the mission team's righteous concern, if not anxiety, for the new believers they had to leave behind as they fled out the back door of Thessalonica at night. Most of this storyline has been included in the first three podcasts from, from the introduction forward by way of framing how the missions team acted and responded to the events in that city as they, and as they turned their back on it and began to walk toward Berea and then on south to Athens. Paul begins, But we, brethren, have been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager for great, with great desire to see your face. Now, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they are the we here. And they all felt, and the word literally in Greek is orphaned, okay? The sharply separated results of being ripped away from the new believers because they they had viewed those, those people in Thessalonica who had believed as their own children. That gap was from the face-to-face times, not the gap of being separated in the realm of Holy Spirit. Further, when Paul writes of great desire, it is the same word that is interpreted great, out of control, lust, in context where the theme is dark, or regarding judgment. Here, the context is one of deep longing, righteous longing to be with those new believers. In verse 18, Paul explains why the face to face meetings had not happened. Quote, for 
we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once. And yet, Satan thwarted me. Numerous times, Paul had repeatedly tried to find a way around the blockage, the hindrance, but the resistance stood in his face. Here, he ascribes it to Satan himself. Satan had been the blocker. The Greek here is ekkoptane, meaning that the route, the road back to Thessalonica had been cut. The verb refers to Roman armies who would tear up big gaps in the road behind them to inhibit any troops rushing up from behind. Picture, if you will, a solid road on a raised berm through a deep swamp. Deep, dark waters to the right and to the left. What Paul is picturing is that the road back to Thessalonica had been cut, ripped up, so that the travel through or around would be impossible to Paul and the team. Or so Satan thought. Verse 19 and 20 it expresses a burst of emotion from Paul in the presence of God the Father. For who is our hope or crown or joy of this, this crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's emotions were on a high plane. His wording effulgent, over the top. And this is a rhetorical question he's asking. To which the answer is indeed yes. The Thessalonian ecclesias do represent the hope, the joy, and even the plated laurel wreath crown that was awarded to the winners of the Greek games or to the conquering generals who marched their armies in a triumph through Rome. All that joyful expression is placed in the presence of the yet-to-come king. Any joy in the Lord for the results of Holy Spirit-empowered service, evangelism, healing, or resurrections, all of those events would spread joy and glory among those who expressed their gifts of the Spirit. So, disregard the chapter break here. If you recall, Greek uh, manuscripts, and we don't have an original of those, but we have 5,000 complete copies of the Greek New Testament. Okay, and it's written in all capital Greek letters, no punctuation, no spaces. And so when you go to create verses or chapter breaks or punctuation, that's at the mercy of an editor. God bless editors. I think we'll see some of them in heaven, I hope. But there is no chapter break here. The passionate letter from Paul continues in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul writes with longing that when the team could no longer endure the lack of contact or news from the ecclesias, he and Silas stayed behind in Athens and sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. He jumped over the devil's roadblock. On modern three, uh, throughways, freeways from today's Athens in Greece up the coast to Thessaloniki, 
they've used modern bridging technology to go over canyons and rivers, and it's nearly a straight shot up the east coast of Greece as the crow flies. It is still a 300-mile journey by car. In Paul's day, his route out of Thessalonica was to the west, then south through Berea, and then on to Athens. It would have zigzagged as the road passed around canyons and and through through rivers where they could get a ford to get across a river, and then back in line to keep coming south. If you add 50% to the direct distance, you would have an estimate that it would take a minimum of one month for Timothy to walk back to Thessalonica. On arrival, this apostolic envoy began to teach, answer questions, pointing to the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. That was the Septuagint. You know, Greek communities and Jewish communities had had that translation for over 200 years. And what he did with that was to see what characterized the promised Messiah that was to be embraced, trusted, and received by faith. He was there to encourage and strengthen the ecclesias so that they were not shaken or disturbed or in a broken down state. He was not just there to take a spiritual temperature and turn and head south again back to Athens. Timothy was there as a kingdom servant to thwart any deception that might arise within those fellowships that suffering was not part of their new faith in Christ. Indeed, Paul says that we are all destined for afflictions. In verse 4, we get a continuation of that theme on afflictions. He says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, now, I choose to interpret the we's in these couple of verses here as including the new believers in Thessalonica. It includes Ford's church and the whole body of Christ today, as well as that particular apostolic team. That reality of afflictions has risen more than once in my life. When our family was seeking to reach out to our town, it's a little coastal town just south of San Francisco. We knocked on doors. We left gifts on doorsteps. We engaged people in the marketplace and in the local churches. The latter, the churches, were not receptive to a new work in our town. Rather, one of those churches staged a tribunal charging me with planting a church to steal their members. Well, that was not so. Months of pushback had left me weary with no breakthrough in sight. And I ended up in a pastor's gathering in San Jose and had gathered, and we'd split up into, into twos, of, twos, and we went to corners and we prayed for each other. And I'd shared some private stuff about the struggles that I was having with another brother. When the, when the meeting got silent again and we were ready to move on to the next thing, <clears throat> He leaped to his feet and he shouted aloud, Dick here is struggling with oppression and we need to stop and pray for him. Well, that was not what I had in mind at all. But they did pray and afterward, a couple from Minnesota who had been leading a team at that conference came to me and offered more prayer. I accepted. So they seated me in the middle of a circle. I was surrounded by these people who were praying. They were prayer warriors. And... Uh, <clears throat> 
one of the women leaned in just to gently ask if she could touch my back, and I said yes. She touched my back, and then she gasped and, and lurched backwards, and, and everything stopped. And so she was asked to describe what it was that she felt and saw, and this obviously was in the spirits, not in the natural, but she described uh, some green, frozen, slimy arrows in my back. Okay, spiritual realities, not the natural. And I was asked if I wanted to continue to have those arrows removed. And I mumbled, uh, yes, please, by faith. I did not know what was coming. One by one, those arrows were identified and removed. Just the hand was waved over my back and, and, and those, those uh, wicked assignments against me left. The conclusion that they came to as a team was that I had been hit by repetitive, jealous, cursing, fearful, friendly fire from other Christians in my labors to see an outreach to our town come to life. I had never experienced any such deliverance or spiritual intervention before. I was, I was really on the cusp of moving from Father, Son, Holy Book as a trinity to to a biblical trinity, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was, I was right on the edge of that. I'd experienced some with Holy Spirit, and I knew with certainty that Holy Spirit was present and empowering that prayer team. I felt a burden lifted. My mind was cleared. My countenance changed, and peace returned. That was just a whisper. That was just a little taste of what God was calling my family to begin walking in. Now, for the second time here in this text, in chapter 3, the phrase of, could endure it no longer, was dictated by Paul. First, it was started as a we. And then in verse 5, he personalizes it as an I, where he says, Paul, I, sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. Now, when there's warfare on one front in your life, it's easy to envision that warfare is present in someone else's life as well. Paul wrote of the satanic block that prevented him from personally coming to the ecclesias. And now he writes that he is fearful that the tempter, Satan, might also have crushed the new believers in Thessalonica. He was also concerned about the labors of the missions team that they might have that might have come to nothing. Such was his momentum of concern that he's he's been dictating three and a half chapters into this into this letter, and, and then he gets around to mentioning that Timothy has returned safely with a good report from the Thessalonican ecclesias, from the churches. The report that Timothy brought spoke to the fears and concerns of the previous verse. He has brought us good news of your faith and love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as long as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord." Any fears that had arisen about the condition and faith of the new believers had been vaporized by Timothy's report. 
even the word if in that last phrase could be translated since or as for you all, you are standing firm for the Lord. It is Paul's way to say, keep going forward, trusting in Christ, relying on Holy Spirit for insight and energy to stand firm in your faith in Jesus. Paul overflows again here with emotional over the boundaries, if you will, with his wording in verses 9 and 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith? Now here, translators and interpreters have to wrestle with Paul's overflow of joy and promised continued prayer. One scholar said, this is like piling Ossa on Pelion. Now, that means nothing to modern readers, okay? But to the listeners in Thessalonica, it was saying, we lift the gigantic mass of Mount Ossa in Greece and pile it on top of Mount Pelion an even bigger hunk of rock. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it'd be like piling Mount Tamalpais in Marin on top of Mount Diablo in Walnut Creek. This was another over-the-top statement from Paul. And he says he and the team want to come against, amongst, excuse me, not against, but amongst the Thessalonians to complete or perfect what is lacking in their faith. The verb there is katartisai, which is used in the Gospel of Matthew to describe mending fishing nets. And in Galatians, it's used to describe the mending of men's souls and spirits. Paul's heart is to keep newborn ones and, and to help them, to keep them and to help them to grow up solid and pure. No holes in their spiritual walk no broken places in their lives. Verses 11 to 13 is Paul's conclusion to his overflowing greetings to the ecclesias. He ends it in the following summary in prayer form. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. For all men, just as we also do for you, so that they may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Pretty passionate prayer. But it would be another six years until Paul returns to Thessalonica. So Forge family, we've looked at Paul's prayers and the dispatching of Timothy to care for churches in Thessalonica. When he hears good things from them, he writes back with joy and makes plans for the future. So what has Timothy been doing for the last 800 miles plus of walking beside and with Paul and Silas? Remember, he, he was being mentored. He was being brought along as part of the ministry team and then sent as a full member back to Thessalonica. Now, have you ever experienced the sacrificial love of a spiritual mentor and their persistence on your behalf? 
in my second year of ministry, I was assigned to a trainer who was in Tempe, Arizona. I was uh, on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at that time. They've since changed their name. They're now called Crew. But at that time, I had spent uh, my first year on, on campus at Stanford University. It was pretty abysmal. Pretty, it was not just mine, but the whole team really struggled that year on campus. And um, I choose to believe that we laid foundations for what broke out the year after I left. Okay. Nevertheless, I was sent on to Tempe to get better trained. And um, on arrival at the University of uh, Arizona State University, I was assigned part of the student body as my, if you will, parish. I was to go on and be uh, an evangelist and discipler in the midst of that part of my assignment. Now, while my year there did build friendships with the team and there were significant results with evangelism and discipleship, the trainer kept raising the bar. No matter how hard we labored, he kept demanding bigger turnouts, larger attendance at conferences, etc. He, God bless him, I'm going to see him in heaven. He was a metrics-driven minister of the gospel. By the eighth month, under his leadership, I was profoundly discouraged. And the cynical phrase that you hear about pitchers in baseball when they sort of run out of gas, the phrase is, stick a fork in him. He's done. Well, that applied to me. I ended up calling my friend John in Mountain View and poured out my frustration. He listened and asked questions. He hemmed and hawed and agreed that it sounded pretty bad. And he hung up. Minutes later, I got a call from one of the leaders at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. Now, I'd served under Ron on weekends with the high school students because I had no ministry going on the weekends while I was at Stanford. So I went over to Peninsula Bible Church and I got involved with the high school kids under Ron. So Ron wanted to know if it had rained lately in the desert or was Camelback Mountain still standing there. I mean, it was an inane, you know, random conversation from him, but he was taking my temperature. And, and he finally hung up, and I, and I felt encouraged on the whole that I had been heard and I would be prayed for. What I did not know was that John and Ron jumped into a Fiat 850 convertible and started driving all night to Tempe, Arizona to get to me. On the way, they ran into a sandstorm outside Palm Springs and had to wrestle the top up on that little sports car in a lashing wind. They'd smoked a series of really bad cigars to stay awake, and they arrived gritty, bleary-eyed, and stinky. And they demanded that I take them out for lunch. I, was, I felt so loved. I was so glad to see them. I was rejoicing that the Lord heard my cry for soul help and spirit healing. And they were around for about 24 hours, conversations and prayers, and then they jumped back in that little car and raced back to Palo Alto because they had ministry responsibilities the following two days away. So ask, you know, ask yourself here, uh, what was that all about? And what it was all about was uh, I, 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 uh, I was left in a much better place having been mended, okay? 
And it turned out that Ron extended an invitation for me to come and be a pastoral intern in their equipping program at Peninsula Bible Church. It turned out Jan Smith was in that pastoral intern class, and I see her across the room from me. We knew each other. Um, at the end of that uh, pastoral intern time where Ron had really discipled us and had helped us work with high school kids, um, it was really Kenneth Coleman's um, pattern of, uh, you watch while I do it, uh, we do it together, I watch while you do it, you do it, and I'm gone, which is the pattern of Jesus from the Gospels. And then Ron um, had started a large singles outreach in a restaurant on Sunday mornings, some 600 showed up every Sunday morning, and and uh, after I married Janice, after the, after the intern program was done, uh, we were assigned to a table at that a group called Careers on Sunday mornings to work with single adults. Uh, a couple of years passed, and I was invited back to the staff at Peninsula Bible Church and um, administered alongside of Ron with the other team uh, for another 11 years. And uh, in that process, we moved into the Half Moon Bay area, and we were we were neighbors right next door to Ron and his wife, and we could watch their marriage, and we could say, that's great, we got to practice that. And we could watch their marriage and say, no, I don't think that's what God has for us. That's not our story. We're going to do something different. So it was a, an amazing exposure to, to a mentor. Now, this has just been an example for you. My prayer for each of you is that you come to a similar experience of someone or ones who extend themselves to you for the purpose of lifting, mending, restoring, and encouraging so that you and they are filled with the joy of the Lord going forward. So ask God for divine appointments along the journey that will profoundly encourage you. At the same time, ask God for a mentor. I know I've brought this up before. Time to do it again. Secondly, our focus here at Forge is the raising up of the next generations. Some of you are ready to leave on that journey that starts you independently following Jesus. You know, I see Jonna and Jonathan here today. There are others not here. They're traveling. They're in the Southland. Uh, they're already in college. There are, and there are, some of them are much smaller. Some of them are not even grade school. So they're rising in our midst. My prayer for you is that you would be as well equipped as Timothy to be able to answer questions, to be able to encourage others, to point out in the scriptures where you and uh, where you are anchored to the Lord Jesus and why you're anchored to the Lord Jesus and ready to practice your spiritual gifts as you go. And you will go as a forge envoy carrying with you the seed of how this church, this ecclesia, works by the Spirit in today's world. Keep getting ready for what the Lord has for you so that we can rejoice with you in harvest or in suffering, for we know the outcome will extend the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, over-the-top joy and thanksgiving is available to us as we follow you. Please equip us to be messengers, envoys, and ambassadors of Christ. We ask for divine appointments, phone calls, opportunities to serve, encounters, all that draw us out 
draw us out into the where your love is demonstrated and, and we can mirror that. We can mirror the love of Christ to others. And Lord, with that comes certainty of our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family, we love you. God bless you. See you soon.